What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today, my guest is Anano Bhattacharya, all right? And he wrote a fantastic book called The Man from the Future. So I'm super excited for you all to uh, listen to this episode. This episode is a bit more uh, science-y than normal. And I know a lot of you love science. Like I'm into more of like the psychological sciences, right? Like how we interact with each other, how we think, all these different types of things. So uh, Anano's, his book is called The Man from the Future. And it's about a, a little known scientist uh, who doesn't get nearly enough credit. And his name was John von Neumann. All right. So it's, it's like part biography, but also it explains a lot of the big scientific breakthroughs that we've had throughout the years that like are pretty much responsible for what, where we're at today. Right. And the, the scientist that he writes about John von Neumann, he had his hands in like everything all right like from quantum physics right to like the the atomic bomb to modern day computers like it is crazy how this dude was dabbling in everything and like people like me have never heard of him right like i'm sure if you're like super into the sciences you you've heard of him but anyways i asked anano about you know why he decided to write this book and it's because he did not see nearly enough written about john von neumann so i was able to ask anano a lot of questions about you know the book his research because one of the things that i was just fascinated with was how much Anano knows about all these different topics where he was able to write about them and break them down. Uh, because yeah, if you've like even heard of quantum physics and if you're like me, you're like, what the hell is that? So Anano is a very just like smart, intelligent guy. He talks about, you know, who he had to reach out to to fact check some of these things. And there's some in really interesting like behind the scenes stories that he shares about this. But yeah, we, we dive into game theory because that's something that John von Neumann was, uh, you know, one of the innovators of, which uh, some of you who listened to my recent episode about the awesome book, Hidden, Hidden Games with, uh, you know, uh, Moshe and Erez. Uh, yeah, like you'll be interested in this because John von Neumann is like the dude who was one of the originals with game theory. But anyways, there's so much that we cover. And I think, you know, a lot of you are really going to enjoy this episode. You'll enjoy the book as well. So yeah, head down to the description below. Make sure you follow Anano over on Twitter. He's a writer. He's regularly doing like science writing and stuff like that. But most importantly, there is also a link to his new book, The Man from the Future. It just came out like last fall. Took me a, a while to re read it, but I finally got around to it and loved it. So head down to the description, grab a copy. It's out now. It's out everywhere. All right. But before we get started, if you're new here, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. I read hundreds of nonfiction books a year. Love chatting with authors about it. So make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you're followed. And if you are a subscriber and you're not following me on social media, take a second, go do that. While you're listening to this podcast, whip out your phone, head over to Twitter, Instagram, follow me at The Rewired Soul. I love chatting with all of you. I've been getting like really bored with some of the books that I've been buying lately. And I'm trying to like dabble in different topics. Recently, I've really got into like sociology. But yeah, I love when you guys follow me because you recommend a ton of great books and topics that I've never heard of. So follow me at The Rewired Soul. Let's chat. Let's toss around some book ideas. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Anano Bhattacharya about his new book, The Man from the Future. Hello, Anano. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So we've been trying to link up for a while. It took me a while to read the book. I absolutely loved it. It is The Man from the Future. But before we dive into the book, can you give my audience a little bit of your background? Who are you? What do you do? All that good stuff. Yeah, sure. I'm a, I'm a London-based science writer. I mean, years ago, I did a physics degree. Yeah. very long time ago and then a, a 
PhD in uh, protein crystallography, which is more like biochemistry. Mm. And I was out in San Diego postdocing. And I think round about then I decided that research wasn't for me. Um, <clears throat> I'd spent the last several years kind of skipping from subject to subject. Mm. So, um, and I enjoyed that. Um, so I went back to London and, um, did a master's in science communication there at Imperial and, uh, became a science journalist. And that's what I've been doing for, um, many years since then, sort of 15, 16 years. Mm. Um, and my last job before I quit to write this book was at the economist as a science correspondent, but it was at, I was at nature before then as well. Oh. So that's, uh, awesome. a bit about so, me. So. Yeah. So one of the things like I, I bring a lot of people on, uh, you know, because I try to read books that are way above my level of knowledge. Right. And science communication is it's a big thing. Right. Like, I feel like more people should learn about all these different topics because they do affect us on a daily basis. So I didn't even realize they had like like a whole like degree in science communication. Like how how was that? Like, what are some things that you learned about taking like these like high level ideas and communicating them? to the average person and part two of that question, how do you think more people can do that with their own writing? You know what I mean? Right. Well, um, the science communication masters at Imperial, I think it's the oldest, um, mm. course like that in the UK, but it's, you know, it has uh, a lot in common with, uh, sort of like the science journalism type courses that in the States, um, there's some pretty famous ones uh over there and uh what do they do well there's the practical side of things so they get you to write kind of news stories and you dabble in radio and record mm. podcasts and you know if you're interested in in uh, doing film there's um this kind of uh, record you do some film stuff it's a little taster of everything over the course of the year but the uh, the more theoretical side is looking at really the sociology of science how does science work mm. um what does it mean to communicate science in a way? I mean, are you trying really to hype science? Are you trying to, um, you know, who, whose job are you doing? Are you, are you, are you trying to ensure that scientists get, get more research dollars or, mm. you know, are you trying to be a bit more critical and look at the, the role of science in society? Um, so it's a, it's a big mash. It was a lot of fun actually. Um, although it was yeah. a long time ago now. <laughs> yeah yeah well i appreciate what you do and everybody who helps communicate this kind of stuff to uh, a guy like me so so the book tell me a little bit about like what inspired it like what made you dive into this man's life and want to get his story out there and all the all the different topics that he dabbled in that we'll touch on pretty soon yeah i mean he's quite a remarkable figure but um he's almost un heard of really. I mean, he's, he's hardly, um, he's hardly known. Um, but I found during about the past 10 years or so in journalism, his name just kept cropping up more and more often. Hmm. Um, so he'll be known to people who are in computing or have studied computer science because of the von Neumann architecture. And that's really, um, kind of the abstract blueprint for almost every computer, including, you know, your smartphone today, mm -hmm. it's, it's the, it's the blueprint of the programmable computer. And then people in economics will have heard of him because of game theory, but they, they won't necessarily realize that these two von Neumanns are kind of the same <laughs> von Neumann and he, yeah. he, he sort of skirted from topic to topic. And over the years, um, I, I sort of started getting curious. So I just remember one day going back um to my house and just grabbing um like a random selection of popular science books off my shelf and i noticed his name was in the index of about half to or, you know mm. almost two-thirds of them and these books spanned sort of 70 years like the first one was this 1950s primer in economics and then he's mentioned in um the ascent of man by jacob bronowski He's mentioned in, I think, Dan Dennett's Consciousness Explained. Mm. And he comes up in all these different contexts. Although, you know, it must be a book about this guy. Yeah. And 
Um, and there was. There is this biography written by Norman McRae eh, back in the 1990s. And it's a pretty um, kind of traditional biography. It, it tells yeah. the story of his life and it dabbles a little bit with his work. But I thought, well, you know, that's not the sort of book I'm interested in writing. And um, it, in a way, it's not the sort of book that I'm that interested in reading either, because to me, what was most interesting about von Neumann was the incredible breadth of his ideas. So what held those ideas together? Because they, they, they span everything from computing to the, to the atom bomb, um, to the most abstruse problems in logic. And the more that I found out about his ideas, the more I realized what an impact he had made, um, on the modern world, you know, there's von Neumann-esque thinking that kind of permeates, um, you know, nuclear for everything from nuclear strategy to, um, the, the bridge between neuroscience and artificial intelligence and computer Mm. science, which he, you know, first helped to build. I thought there must be some way to tell this story that's, that's a bit different that allows kind of a, a popular science reader to get into those ideas. It doesn't, you know, baby them too much and gives, gives them some idea of the mathematics and then kind of looks really chapter by chapter at how those ideas developed over, uh, over the decades, um, right into the present day. And in some cases, like into the future as well, in a, in a, in a weird way. And so, you know, that was my, uh, that was my thinking. And that was why the book is quite unusual. It's, it's not a biography so much as a biography of ideas and, mm. um, you know, whether, whether that works or not, you know, you'll have to tell me. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I, I just, I just wrapped it up this weekend and yeah, it was super interesting because me personally, like I'm super into like psychology and philosophy and all that and then as i'm like checking out like the chapter list of your book i see game theory i'm like wait what like i you know i wasn't sure i'm like it maybe sounds familiar and then when i got to that chapter finding out like he wrote one of the early books about game theory and everything like that and i was like oh because i actually just interviewed the authors of that new book uh hidden games which is all about game theory recently and everything they probably mentioned him in there but uh yeah it was super it was super interesting And, and as you said like his ideas kind of span all these different fields. But like for you, this is what I was wondering, because I'm always wondering about the author. Like, I'm like, holy crap, how do you know so so much stuff, right? Like, so I'm curious, like, what what was like the research like for this book? How many of these topics? Because we're talking about like quantum theory, computing, game theory, nuclear bomb. <laughs> we're talking about all these things. And you are the guy who is describing them and explaining them to me. So how do you get all of that knowledge to relay it to the reader? You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it nearly killed me. What can I say? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, there was one thing, um, before I answer that question a bit more directly, there was one thing that was really important to me when I started thinking and writing about it, which is that, you know, you read a popular math book or a popular science book and often, especially if it's say physics, um, it will be almost a celebration or something, something like that of a particular field. Mm -hmm. Right. And if it's a popular math book, it will be a celebration of mathematics for the sake of mathematics. Right. But von Neumann wasn't like that. I mean, he loved applying mathematics and he was constantly thinking about these sort of human problems and embedding mathematics into them and, and, you know, and, and then using maths to kind of solve them, or at least give, give some answers that, that we can work with. Um, and it was this, the sort of social repercussions, the fact that mathematics isn't just for doing sums or, you know, the depressing yeah. answer that maths teachers are forced to give when their students go, well, what's, well, what are we learning maths for? It's like, yeah, it'll help you, you know, make sure that you've paid the right amount at the till for your shopping. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on, there's, there's so much more to this stuff than that. It actually has shaped you know, 20th century history and, and, and 21st century history. And, uh, you know, the very technology that we use is, um, you know, computer program, you know, that, that stems from 
um, really abstruse, like logic from the early 20th century, these, Ooh. these questions of what can we prove within mathematics? And, uh, and then you get people like Turing and Gödel just yeah. you know, thinking about, um, uh, step-by-step, -step, uh, methods to solve problems and that sort of is basically, you know, a computer algorithm and mm -hmm. they're, they're thinking about these things. And, and the guy that, you know, helps to translate that, uh, that thinking, uh, really, of you know, it, which is like a part of logic into the modern computer program, because it's all there in his head is von Neumann. So, I mean, when I started this, I had no idea. I mean, um, my under undergrad degree was physics. So I was passingly familiar with some of the fields, uh -huh. like particularly say, uh, quantum mechanics. And I'd read a little bit about game theory and, you know, I knew a bit about fusion and fission and the, and the bomb. Um, but, um, that first chapter, which is on kind of the mathematical, the crisis and the foundations of maths, I really knew next to nothing on. Hmm. So, um, while I didn't, you know, go digging around in von Neumann's, you know, archives, looking through all his letters and stuff, cause you know, many of the letters are already published and available. Um, um. What I did do is, um, read a whole bunch of kind of texts about mm. the history of, of those particular fields, but then really dig into his, um, own work and his papers as best as I could. Um, and then, um, for each of these areas, I try and recruit, um, you know, an expert. Mm. I was very lucky with that first chapter because I was, uh, I was looking around and, uh, um, there was a historian of mathematics, um, uh, who dealt with David Hilbert and that early foundational crisis. And he, he, he just retired and he happened to live, uh, down the road from me in London. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so we, we live about a mile apart. So we met in our local wood and went for walks and, uh, he, uh, he read, um, the first draft of that chapter. And, uh, he, and he loved it. And, um, I said, okay, uh, well, that's great. Now I've overwritten it. Cause I'd written sort of 20,000 words. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, uh, and so, you know, what, what, what can, what can we cut? And, um, I sent in my efforts and so on. So that was a great relief because, um, you know, to, to engage and grapple with the finer points of set theory whilst mm -hmm. also, uh, of course, um, quite soon after that, the pan pandemic began and uh, yeah. I, I was, you know, homeschooling while, you know, my wife was trying to lecture students, um, over, you know, who, who were ages away all on zoom. Yeah. So it was, um, it was a tough time. And then I hit quantum mechanics and, uh, then I got, I got really, <laughs> I started to initially become unstuck because I thought I knew this stuff, right? I, I did my yeah. undergrad degree in physics, but then you realize the foundational mathematics you don't really do. I mean, you, as a physics undergrad, you're, 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 you're given problems to solve, mm -hmm. um, using kind of pretty standard differential calculus, but actually the, the deep mathematics of early quantum mechanics is all set theory. It's, um, it was based around von Neumann's work. And so yet again, you know, there was this thing that I thought I had some kind of grip on and, uh, I yeah. had to re-educate myself really. And, and again, pick up the phone to people and try and, you know, get mathematicians and physicists to explain it to me and, uh, and check. And, you know, you'll, you'll see there's a long list of thank yous at the end of the book. Yeah. And, uh, many of those people were recipients of desperate emails and calls from me. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, it took, uh, the, the thing took two and a half years, really two to two and Ooh. a half years to write. And I was trying to write it more or less full time. And I quit, um, kind of like the, you know, the best job I'd ever had in order to write it. So it really yeah. had to get ridden. I gave myself no choice. <laughs> um, but, uh, it was. Um, you know, during, during some very difficult times, you know, immersing myself in this stuff was such a treat. It was such a, mm. a, a delight. I mean, even though it was like uh, pummeling my brains and it was the hardest intellectual work probably I've ever done. 
it was also you know, very, very rewarding and, uh, you know, uh, uh, a delight as well. Yeah. well. Um, and I hope some of that comes across. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, I mean, <laughs> is it, uh, towards the, I mean, towards the end, things get easier because it gets uh, less uh, mathematical and, uh, and, uh, more crazy, you know, the nuclear strategy stuff and reproducing machines and all of that. So, um, you know, and there's elements of science fiction and all of that. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. There was <laughs> like, yeah, even with me and like some of my writing and research that I do, like I, I get just like cognitively like fatigued. I'm like, there's too much information. I didn't take breaks. So as I'm like reading this, I'm like thinking, I'm like, how did he like learn all this stuff and research? And I can only imagine how just like taxing that was and, you know, getting all these concepts, even with a base knowledge. But real quick, uh, since the book does start out like with kind of like set theory and quantum mechanics, uh, for my listeners out there, the lay people, can you kind of like, summarize what like what is like quantum mechanics and i think more importantly too how does you know how does it affect our daily lives like why should you know some random person care that some scientists somewhere are researching like all these quantum things you know what i mean so let's start with the easy one right (laughs) (laughs) um well uh i guess simply put quantum mechanics and quantum theory deals with um the 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 realm of um atoms and and below the the realm of the very small and uh we know that the mathematics holds up really really well but when we come to probing what that mathematics really means in terms of you know the physical underlying underlying reality you know we there's still not broad agreement on, on, on that. Now, why, why should you care? Well, modern electronics, um, deals with, you know, uh, we, uh, quantum mechanics plays a, a role there from, you know, in semiconductor science, um, mm-hmm. everything from, um, you know, GPS, um, to, I, I don't know, to, um, well, uh, I mean, now people are trying to develop quantum computers, right? So it's, yeah. again, it's, it's absolutely cutting edge now. Um, so what seemed, you know, this abstruse, again, this, this strange pursuit of, um, that was quite divorced from application has, as is so often the case in science, become extremely important to yeah. the world around us, to, to the technology that we use and the philosophy of quantum mechanics, which also seemed, um, kind of irrelevant to, to many physicists, you know, it, it, the maths worked. So what do we care? Well, now when we're looking at, well, is a quantum computer going to be possible? Then some of the questions that people are starting to ask were those questions that uh, those early pioneers of quantum mechanics, um, like Heisenberg and Bohr and Schrodinger that they were asking back in the twenties and, and, you know, what underlies it all really was, um, von Neumann's mathematics, where, you know, he kind of cemented the, the foundations. He said, okay, whatever else, you know, we do, mm-hmm. we know that this is, this, this maths is right. So whatever you want to theorize about the meaning of all of this crazy stuff, it, you know, the maths has still got to work yeah. and, um, we have to deal within the limits of, of, of that math. Um, so, you know, um, can we, um, entangle lots of different, say, I don't know, photons so that we can get some calculations, um, out of a quantum computer, you know, how many can we hold together? You know, this, all of these questions are kind of rooted in, in that in that maths, that very early mathematics from the 1920s. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. The, the first time I heard of like quantum commute, uh, computing was, uh, when I started learning about like blockchain technology, right. And they're talking about the security and like, Hey, it would take like quantum, uh, computing to like hack this, but that's like, we're nowhere near that and the amount of power you need and stuff like that. So, so where, like, where do you say we're at with like, quantum computing, right? Like, is that anything that's happening 
in our lifetime? Is anybody working on it? Like they're researching it, but it's like our steps are like, is there progress being made in that realm? Well, um, I, I'm not an expert on that, but, um, you know, there's, there's, there's baby steps. They're, uh, <laughs> they're slowly, uh, they're slowly building up. I mean, uh, this is, this is the, this, I think, I think you sort of make it making, uh, my point because, you know, is this possible? Can mm -hmm. we make, can we get enough, um, of these particles entangled together or is there some fundamental limit? to um what we can do um with quantum computers and i i don't think i mean there's disagreement over the answer to that question so mm. will they ever be useful you know i don't know i can't i can't tell you but i'm not alone in not being able to tell you the answer to that because yeah. we you know they have to go back to this uh, to to um the very basic questions of um you know why does you know why is the wave function, um, what does it mean to, to, to make an observation mm. and is, you know, when the wave function goes pop and you move from one realm of quantum mechanics to kind of, um, the everyday realm as it were, then, then what's actually happening? What are the, um, what are the physical processes that, um, that occur there? And, uh, we beginning to get the answers to these sorts of questions, but until we have them, we, I don't think we know for sure that we can uh, get a useful quantum computer. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of like kind of researching this kind of stuff, one of the things like throughout the book, you, you talk about like some of the different research and, you know, uh, there's a chapter on like the think tank, uh, by the sea and everything like that. And as a layperson, is it somebody like who, uh, you know, tries to keep up to date with like news and politics and where tax dollars are going and everything like i'm curious like where is it is it mainly like government organizations that fund this like all these different types of research that you kind of cover because here's my question and this and feel free to correct my ignorance but i'm like how do you like pay people to research something and not really know if it's going to lead anywhere you know what i mean like it, you know, like, hopefully, hopefully you hired and like got like the smartest people in the world in this room to like think and talk about these things. But like, as somebody out here, I'm like, okay, but what if, what if there's no results, right? Where's that funding coming from? Is it private organizations? Is it government organizations? Like we talk about the, you know, A-bomb and everything like that, obviously that was like military spending and stuff, but, but yeah, where does this money come from? And does it always lead somewhere? Do they get results? Right. Well, I mean, that's, that's a huge question, but I mean, that speaks to the development of science over like the 20th century and, and the 19th century. So for mm. ages, like science was, you know, the pursuit of, you know, gentlemen with, you know, <laughs> using their own money at one stage. And then, um, slowly, um, uh, government started funding it. And of course there was the big turning point really was the second world war. Um, yeah. when, um, you know, the U S showed that if you pump massive amounts of money in, you can crack virtually, <laughs> you know, any problem you know, that there, there, there was a great deal of doubt as to whether people, whether scientists would be able to produce a fission bomb, but you know, when the U S government finally realized with panic stricken scientists telling them that this was the case, that, that it, that it might well be possible and that, you know, Hitler might be chasing a bomb suddenly mm. when they threw money at it and some of the finest scientific minds in the world got working on the problem, they, you know, they, they cracked that. And so having achieve this, um, then I guess there was a, a big difference in the amount of funding that suddenly became available for physics. And then later mm. on with biotechnology and biology and medical research, the money started flooding in and, um, the majority of it, I think, um, depending on the country, uh, a lot of it is, is, uh, government money. So, um, yeah. You know, in, in the US, you've got, you know, the National Science Foundation and you've got, um, 
you know, the um, NIH for medical research. And there are similar bodies all over the world. But then um, when the research gets close to kind of real application, um, then often um, uh, private funders get involved mm. um, and you have, you know, um, companies paying for more research. I mean, of course, um, in the States, you've got people like DARPA, you've got the military funding mm -hmm. ma massive amounts of research, some of which will you know, never be published and never see the light of day. Yeah. And um, it's, it's just a huge enterprise. And the amount of cash flowing into science um, has, you know, has only gone in one direction. And really um o over many years and um uh, it's become a very kind of specialized endeavor now there's always been arguments about kind of basic versus applied research mm. and i think what's interesting in this book is that you know a, a lot of scientists will tell you you know you've got to fund basic research um you know you don't know what the repercussions might be i mean one day down the line uh, you, you take something that seems really, um, you know, off the wall and irrelevant and, um, suddenly you realize it has huge applications. I mean, you know, the World Wide web was established as a kind of communication, uh, really at CERN for particle physics. And, you know, there, are uh, there are, there are crazy examples of, um, um, maths that nobody really thought would be useful, um, becoming extremely useful. Yeah. And, um, I think this, the, the, the whole book is kind of, um, really about this process in a way, because yeah. we begin in the first chapter with, you know, this crazy seeming almost philosophical question, uh, you know, about the foundations of mathematics, you know, what can we prove? with maths and is, is, is the language of mathematics really bulletproof or is it actually, you know, are there paradoxes in it that might undermine mathematics? And that's how, you know, von Neumann starts as yeah. a teenager, right? By tackling that problem. And then he applies this kind of logical mind that he's developed to every sphere to break down stuff like, you know, um, economics into something that's more logically tractable into the, the structure of the computer, the programmable computer. He just looks at that and, and, uh, and reduces it to a kind of the logical minimum. And then mm. he, he uses that to kind of solve the problem. You know, he goes about, and as soon as you have this, uh, logical design for the computer, then you can go about building programmable computers because we we've learned how to think about um, the structure of the computer properly. Um, mm -hmm. and so it, it, it sort of weaves this story of mathematics through, um, you know, the technology, technological and, um, other achievements of the 20th century through to the 21st century. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting too, because, you know, after I asked that, then I'm thinking too, cause on the other side of it, it also seems like science and research is massively underfunded, right? Like I had uh, Michael uh, Baskar on here to talk about his book, The Exponential Age, and we were talking about innovation stagnation, right? So as I'm, as I'm reading your book, because I'm not like huge into history or huge into like these types of science, uh, these types of sciences, right? But like, I learned a lot and I'm like, wow, they were like figuring out a ton of stuff. Like there was just like breakthrough, breakthrough, breakthrough. And it, it took, you know, it was over the span of years but when I like, I'm 36 years old, I look at my lifetime, like how many massive innovations have there been? Right. So I'm curious, like, uh, not just like researching this book and the history of it all, but even like with your science writing of, you know, like current topics, uh, why, like, do you think it's a funding issue that we, ha we, we don't have like major innovations? Like you mentioned, like kind of private funding as well. I've seen some people argue that like, you know, Facebook or some of these multi-billion dollar companies are like snatching up the smartest people just for their, you know, their little projects. And, you know, that's the way for scientists to make money because nobody's going to fund them to just play around with stuff and figure things out. So do you see like lack of funding being an issue there? Do you think like all the big ideas 
have been solved for the most part? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, again, <laughs> you're only asking the small questions, right? So, um, <laughs> uh, so uh, I think the 20th century and the early to mid 20th century was a really, really special time. I think, I think that's one thing we have to acknowledge. Uh, I mean, if you look back then, there was so much, just uh, so many innovations, so so much raw science happening. I mean, I think if von Neumann was alive today, there's no way that he would be able to contribute to so many different fields in such um, such critical ways as well, because. I mean, he was around at the birth of quantum mechanics, and then he goes off and, you know, he plays plays a role in the the atom bomb and fusion and the birth of the computer. I yeah. mean, this is just uh, and and then he transforms transforms economics as well. I I, I think, um, you know, we were back in the twentieth century. There was uh, a time when kind of modern science was really um, gearing up and getting going, and then boom. I mean, from the 1930s 1940s onward they just explode and funding as far as i'm aware anyway all over the world for science has only been increasing mm. um but uh, new fields and subspecialities um and so on have just appeared at a, a massive rate so um it's going to be very difficult for funding um you know to keep up to keep up with that so it is mm. it is a you know it is a question what what do we fund what what is what should the public fund and what what should uh private enterprise fund and you know that raises its own ethical issues right because mm. um uh you know private companies doing research and and keeping it secret i mean that has its yeah. own um pitfalls i mean we we don't know what's going on behind, um, you know, uh, Facebook and Google really. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think that, um, there is a, an issue in that science has become increasingly specialized. Um, yeah. and I think those big innovations aren't coming as often as they used to. Um, uh, but I think that's just the nature of, of the science and, you know, technological enterprise. Yeah. Um, so yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's interesting. Like just thinking about it and like seeing what's, what's going on and stuff. Cause sometimes I'm like, man, nothing new's coming on, <laughs> coming around or anything, but Hey, at a certain point, maybe that's a good thing because we, we haven't had like a new nuclear bomb, like a bomb kind of breaks through where it's like, okay, it's just going to blow up the world but um you know uh going back to like von neumann like having his hands in so many different things and your whole inspiration for writing this book like after you know learning more about him do you have any like i don't know even like theories of why he didn't doesn't have as much recognition because i i'm not involved in these sciences and i uh I recognize some of the names, right? Like obviously Einstein, you mentioned like Schrodinger, and then, you know, some others. I'm like, well, these guys sound familiar. Why not von Neumann, right? So like, did you come across anything that might've, uh, might explain that? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, for human beings, stories are, are really important, right? Mm. And um, I think Einstein, uh, it's, a, it's a great story and uh, people, um, instantly latch on to kind of one idea. It's it's um, it's kind of easy to to go. Oh yeah, Einstein, relativity. Um, whereas mm. with von Neumann, there's almost too much. There's too yeah. much to get hold of. Um, so I think I think that's one thing. I, I think um, uh, yeah, I, yeah, and uh, von Neumann is also. Um, you know, uh, I think he was essentially a, a good man, but then he was involved with the atom bomb project. Now, mm -hmm. so was Richard Feynman and it didn't do Feynman any harm, you know, yeah. in terms of his public persona for many years, he's very famous. He's more, certainly more famous than, uh, von Neumann was. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, so, I mean, there's, 
there's possibly an element of that. And of course, von Neumann reasonably famously, uh, was a supporter of a preemptive strike on Stalin's Soviet Union because he was terrified that Stalin would start World War Three uh, within a decade Ooh. of the end of World War Two. Um, I think you have to see that in context um, yeah. uh, a little bit because um, the world had just come through a massive um, war that had left millions dead and to von neumann's kind of all too rational mind it seemed like um yeah the 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 cost of possibly you know hundreds of thousands of russian lives might be a price just about worth paying if we could stop world war three when essentially the human race might face extinction um and i i I add context to this I, i don't kind of judge him try not to kind of judge him either way leave it you know to the to the reader to make their own minds up about that yeah. but i do um show that this was quite a popular surprisingly popular idea at the time there's a good chunk of you know american public opinion that suggested this might be a good idea there were yeah. people within government that thought it might be a good idea there was pacifists like bertrand russell who kind of advocated for this, or at least the threat of a preemptive strike against the Soviet Union, unless they um, promised to give up their nuclear ambitions. So there was a lot going on. And I think um, what I'm hoping at least um, is that, um, you know, the, the book creates something of a narrative that leads people through so that um, you know, we could start to understand how brilliant von Neumann really was. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course that, that, it, you know, gives rise to the, the, the final reason why I think von Neumann isn't, um, so much of a household name. It's, it, it's that, you know, the book's called the man from the future. And I think, um, we're just realizing how important and influential mm. von Neumann really was. I think, you know, in 10 years time. He's still going to be the man from the future. I mean, when I finished the book and the book came out, I think in October in in Britain and February in the States, but just after the book came out, um, uh, there was, uh, the report, I think of, of the Xenobots and these Xenobots are made from, uh, stem cells. Mm. And I think they're designed by kind of an artificial intelligence, like a deep neural net. And what they do is they spin around in uh, petri dishes and they collect other stem cells together in clumps and then these things also start spinning around and creating more um kind of i guess you know you could call them machines uh, in in a way and they're 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 copying themselves and then you know i thought wow these are john von neumann's reproducing automata which he described mathematically back in the, you know, back in the forties and he, he, when he showed and he, he proved that machines could reproduce. And, um, I, I think, you know, these, um, Xenobots and, um, uh, other technologies that, um, you know, still in the future, you know, they're going to be rooted in his, uh, theory of, uh, reproducing automata and. Yeah, in, in 10, 20 years time, we might be looking back again and going, wow, this, this guy was so far ahead of his time. So yeah. I think there's, a, there's just a question of, of time back in the 19, back in 1990, 1980, um, um, we just didn't realize, uh, how far-sighted von Neumann's work really was. I mean, the first mm. Nobel prizes in game theory, uh, were given. 50 years um after the publication of his book with oscar morgenstern theory you know theory of games and economic behavior 50 years since he founded yeah. the field you know john nash he of you know a, a beautiful mind um along with other game theorists stepped up to take a nobel prize and you know von neumann had been dead for decades at that yeah. point um so i i, I think really he's uh 
he's kind of a scientist whose whose time has come for recognition. At least I hope so. Yeah, yeah. It's you know one of the one of the interesting things about that too is I always try to you know talk with authors about or you know teach others about or it's something I've even teaching my son about is you know the person who gets all the credit doesn't necessarily mean they are like the genius behind all this. It's usually people before them or people who are working with them. And you know, but but I think you know uh, like when I think about this stuff, kind of like what you said, like. Von Neumann had so many ideas. I think when we make it too complicated, we would rather look at like one person, you know, and just say, okay, they're the the person who did that. But um, you know, with a with a little bit more of your your time left, I I do want to dive into this kind of tough question that you talked about with like the kind of like ethics and the research. And it was interesting for me to learn about all the conversations people were having about like the A bomb and like when do you strike and stuff like that. And you know, there's uh, eventually what led to like game theory and stuff. But one part that really stuck out to me in the book was, uh, after, after the A-bomb and Hiroshima and everything like that, Von Neumann gets interested in like computing. Right. And, uh, you know, there starts to become this conversation about like missiles and like guided missiles and all this. And somebody like asked him, I can't remember who it was, but they asked him about this, like, Hey, aren't you kind of worried? And he was like, Hey, like I'm just interested in like math and computers and stuff like that. Right. So for me, like, that's where I'm like, I get personally conflicted because it's like, yeah, we need technology to keep moving forward. Right. But then there's also like the unforeseen consequences. So not even with just von Neumann specifically, but we can, you know, start there. Like, what are your thoughts on scientists kind of balancing that out? Right. Like innovation, scientific breakthroughs and the bigger picture because especially with more private companies funding this stuff you have like that's that's like how every like action movie starts right like somebody like that's like a little scientist in a thing and you know something crazy happens so what are your what are your thoughts on scientists kind of finding that balance yeah um well i can i can um <laughs> um i can uh, start talking about what what von neumann made of it and uh and let, let's take it from there i think the first thing is that what my book makes clear is an uncomfortable truth, which yeah. is that um, the modern computer, the modern technological age, it was deeply, deeply in entwined with military research and the and the um, and the uh, and the atom bomb. And I think there's a lot of you know technologists who, who hide technology who'd who'd rather forget about that you know yeah. forget about the historical roots in war really of, of the computer and it started there and you know there's no reason to imagine that um you know we that modern computing and all of this stuff is is kind of free um from uh you know those sorts of ethical challenges now Von Neumann had lived through um, an authoritarian regime. So in Hungary, uh, just after the First World War, there was a kind of communist revolution and um, the communist regime lasted about six months. It was uh, pretty terrible. And, um, you know, he, he lived through that. He wasn't massively affected um, by it, uh, that the, the, his family was quite wealthy and they were they managed to um, uh, cushion themselves from that. But then uh, almost immediately afterwards, a, um, uh, a, a general, a Hungarian general, marched in with forces to kind of depose the, um, the, the communists. And then what followed was kind of even worse. It was, mm. uh, um, there was, you know, public hangings and um, all sorts of terrible stuff. So von Neumann saw this and then, uh, by 1930, he's already predicting the Second World War in um, in surprising detail, and he also sees that there's going to be a you know he also predicts there's going to be a massacre of European Jews, and you know he's from a Jewish background. Um, so, and then when he sees what the Nazis begin to do, I mean, he he gets a job offer from Princeton in 1930, and then he never he never comes back. Europe after that mm. so he ends up at Princeton and then at the Institute for Advanced Study where he's one of the first recruits along with Einstein but what this does is he's basically you know this good-natured um fellow he's 
hyper, hyper intelligent, the fastest brain really that we know of in the 20th century, but he's surprisingly normal. You know, he's a bit of a socialite. He, he, he cracks dirty jokes and, you know, he has this line in dirty limericks and his, uh, we know from his day to day to day to day interactions with people that, um, he, uh, it's very difficult to find anybody who said a really bad word about him. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he does, he, he does these, uh, things like, you know, a Hungarian builder who's moved to the U S a construction worker writes to him and says, where can I learn more about mathematics? You know, I'm Hungarian. So in the middle of the second world war, he writes to a Hungarian friend and says, can you send this guy some Hungarian school maths textbooks? And he does this, he does this stuff, which he's never, you know, he's never going to get real thanks or reward, but mm -hmm. he just does it because he's like that. But, um, as on the, on the, on, on the scientific side, he is convinced that it's his job to put as much technology as he can into the hands of the American government, which he thinks, you know, he's a Democrat with a, a small D and he thinks it's really up to the democratically elected government to make the sorts of decisions mm. as to what to do with its technology. But as you know, a, um, incredibly gifted mathematician, he thinks it's kind of his responsibility to, um, progress science because, you know, if he doesn't do it, somebody else will, and he would rather the yeah. U S had access to this stuff than, um, any authoritarian regime, you know, whether it's the Nazis or, you know, Stalin's, um, Soviet Union, but was he worried about this? Yeah, I, I think he was. And I think it comes out in, um, this telling kind of nightmare that he has, he comes home from Los Alamos one day and just, uh, goes to bed and his second wife, Clara Dan comments on how unusual this is. He sleeps for 12 hours, wakes up in the middle of the night and starts, um, garbling about essentially, um, you know, nuclear power, the dangers of nuclear power. He says this technology is going to make scientists the most hated, but also the most, you know, uh, des desired mm. people on, on the planet. So he immediately understands that, you know, there's going to be terrible consequences for this, for, for the bomb and, and for, uh, for nuclear power. But then he starts talking about kind of calculating machines and, and computers. And he seems to be predicting that computers would also be, could mm. also be profoundly destructive and possibly more so in their use than even the atom bombs that he was helping to create. Yeah. So. Yeah, he was very good. You know, he, he was very good at disguising his concerns. I think even from his, um, you know, his own, um, child, Marina von Neumann, who became an extremely famous economist herself. Um, and so he had this kind of veneer where, you know, he'd go along and, um, pretend not to be concerned, but, you know, we know from his second wife's journals and so on, that he was worried about the end of the world. He was worried about, yeah. you know, the responsibilities uh, of a scientist. He, he wrote an essay on this saying that, you know, in, in the future scientists would have to be steeped in, in their history and in philosophy, as well as just yeah. in science to, to make their own kind of ethical calls. But as far as he was concerned, I think it was very important to him at the time, of course, I mean, we're talking about the forties, fifties, uh, which is when he was alive, um, that, um, he, for his own sake, as a, you know, a Jewish emigre to, uh, the United States that he should do whatever he can to, to help, um, yeah. the United States. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting. That's why, you know, I personally try to read a ton about like moral philosophy and ethics and everything, because when you frame it like that too, especially like you touch on like, you know, uh, Russia advancing in their scientific endeavors and like, you know, doing, you know, uh, the space race and all that kind of stuff. So then the ethical question. So like, I would never want to be in the scientist position. It's like, okay, do I not do this and worry about someone more powerful or more dangerous, but coming up with this technology before we do it and all that kind of stuff. So I do think like 
you know, through your storytelling, like I wasn't like, oh, this, this guy's like, you know, evil or anything like that. And just like, I only care about science. Like these things like, you know, I, I almost, you know, I'm glad that scientists are having these conversations, right? It's not like the movies where someone's just like, I don't care. And I'm just going to make a breakthrough no matter what the consequences. But, um, you know, one of the, one of the last things I wanted to ask you too. So, uh, you mentioned it and you mentioned it a ton in the book. Uh, von Neumann is a super rational guy, right? Like math is like very, just like, boom, structure answers, like what can we prove and all this other stuff. But anyways, then he gets into game theory, right? And he has this realization. People are irrational. So I'm curious, like, like if you could kind of break down, like, cause I feel like I kind of went through that moment when I started learning about a lot of like behavioral economics and psychology. I'm like, people don't make these like correct decisions. So what was it like for him realizing like, wow, people don't always do what's in their best interest, you know, when, when put in these games, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think, um, so, I mean, the Nazis, if, if there was anybody that was going to bring this home to it, you know, that people are not necessarily rational or don't behave nicely towards each other. It was the rise of the Nazis. And that completely, you know, he was this kind of relatively optimistic soul as he was growing up. He was pretty cosseted because he grew up in this incredibly intellectual, wealthy environment in Budapest. And Budapest was booming in the 1920s. And then, you know, he sees what's happening in Germany, which was the kind of intellectual powerhouse of its day, right? America yeah. was, you know, uh, an insular kind of, you know, it was, a, it was, it was no place uh, for, if you, if you wanted to do science, you know, you were going to be in Germany. If you wanted to do mathematics, Göttingen was the capital, mathematical capital of the world in the 1920s up until, you know, the Nazis basically came in and destroyed um german science and mathematics for a generation or, or two so yeah this that he he realized you know he he, re, he was aware of this he he was um aware of it kind of on a on the level of his gut now the interesting thing about game theory is that ultimately although um initially you assume that people are rational the only way that he defines rational there is that they act in their own kind of self-interest in a way mm. so they increase their utility now you know he doesn't make any judgment as to what people um find in their own interest right so yeah. uh you know for you or for me i don't know for me it might be like maximizing the amount of chocolate cake that i eat right yeah. but for somebody else it might be um uh going out and rescuing dogs so he makes no he makes no um judgment about that but what he says is a rational person will do will act in such a way as to kind of um, increase their utility. So increase their happiness, but it doesn't, mm. you know, game theory at no point kind of assumes what makes people happy. It just yeah. says whatever makes people happy, they will just try and make themselves happier. Now, if yeah. you want to rescue dogs and that's what makes you happy, then you should really act in a way that makes you, you know, that you, you go out and you rescue more dogs, right? You, you yeah. know, you don't eat lots of chocolate cake. Um, so, so, you know, there's, there's no assumptions about what should or shouldn't make, there's no ethical judgments, right? Yeah. Within game theory, but it says, you know, if you start at this position, then, you know, what will happen and then game theory then examines particular, um, situations. Yeah. Like we know, for example, uh, if you play say Monopoly or one of my favorites in this household is Settlers of Catan, oh. but if you play a board game like Monopoly and there's say three of you playing, you know, and one person edges ahead, you just know that even if they don't talk about it, two of those people are going to gang up on the other person. <laughs> yeah. And game theory is the first, you know, mathematical explanation of, of, of why that happens and how that happens. Yeah. And, you know, it, it shows that the, the game will be decided on how long this alliance then lasts. 
um, uh, and whether the other player still manages to win, it will depend on you know how closely this alliance forms, and then if there's another alliance later on, mm. as another player starts to get 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 far ahead. Whereas before, um, the assumption in economics had been you've got you know perfect competition. Yeah. And, um, you're not going to get monopolies forming and stuff and monopolies forming are an aberration and these sorts of coalition coalitions are an aberration. And we know that, um, you know, this sort of, this idea of rationality isn't so important because we know that the game theory works in evolutionary theory, when you're talking about predator prey relationships, mm. right now, you know, hawks and doves, um, now hawks neither hawks nor doves are particularly, you know, rational. They're not sitting there writing out game theory tables to decide yeah. how they should act, but they end up acting in accordance with what game theory predicts. Right. So yeah. there are situations even in you know, human societies where you can, uh, where game theory is very useful, even if people aren't acting what, you know, in, in a strictly rational way. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess that's uh, that's the the, the short answer. Yeah, without getting yeah. into crazy stuff like Christmas dilemma. <laughs> and yeah, no, uh, and you know that's a great place to end it because I I hope people grab this book. I that that was one of my favorite chapters, learning the history, just because it's a topic I was familiar with. But I loved learning so much about all these other topics, like that I'm unfamiliar with. So, so yeah, thanks so much for coming on. And for everybody listening who's like, I need to learn more about this John von Neumann guy. Where where can they find the book and where can they follow you to keep up with uh, your upcoming projects? Now that you can take a break from writing this book and everything like that, where's the best place for them to find you as well? Right. Well, um, I'm on Twitter far too much along with Elon, Elon Musk, apparently. <laughs> so I'm uh, at Onano, A-N-A-N-Y-O. So that's uh, that's a good play. If you want to ply me with questions about John von Neumann, I've also done some threads about John von Neumann's uh, uh second wife clara dan who wrote the first modern computer program and mm. you know she's another figure that has largely been forgotten and we're we're just beginning to kind of rescue really from obscurity but she's mm. brilliant herself and has an amazing story um so uh that's where they can find me and uh the book is, is it ah, everywhere? Is it the international? Book is everywhere. Is, yeah. And uh, of course, in the usual online places, including Jeff Bezos's behemoth. But, <laughs> um, you know, uh, you could do worse than uh, going to your local bookshop and, and say, hey, if you haven't got this book, why haven't you got this book? Get it in. I, yep. I want a copy. And here's a copy. And maybe you may uh, get a copy in for my friend as well. Because exactly. uh, we, we need booksellers to, to see this. It's, uh, as, as you know, Chris, it's an unusual book. It's not quite a biography. It's sort of popular science. It's sort of intellectual history. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I, ho I really hope that it, it works together. And it's an unusual book, but I hope it's, uh, it's a good one and a satisfying one and yeah. kind of a mind expanding one as well. So, yeah, well, I'd, like I said, as somebody who's not into like these uh, particular topics, you nailed it. And yeah, you, you actually gave me more information about other scientists, you know, and their contributions and everything like that. So I loved it. So yeah, again, thanks so much for your time and maybe we'll do this again in the future. Yeah. Great. I hope so. Thanks very much, Chris. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Anano. He is, like I said, he is such an intelligent dude who knows about so many different topics. Like I, I am, you know, in awe at how much he has just learned about so many different things. But yeah, like I said, like this book was actually really interesting. And the only reason why I say actually really interesting is because uh, we all have our different tastes in books. And typically I'm not a fan of like history or biographies, or even this types of science. And maybe it's because, you know, especially with these types of sciences, like I don't fully understand them, but Anano did such a fantastic job breaking it down. I love chatting with him about the research process and everything that went into this book. So it's definitely, definitely worth your time, worth the read. It, it, it's been cool for me, like, because like I said, these are things that we interact with, you know, every day. And I'm glad that Anano and I were able to talk about, you know, the, the ethics behind scientific research 
research and what scientists are like thinking about and the conversations in the book, like the philosophical conversations these guys are having, like, hey, do we even research this thing or do we not research it and hope that somebody else in like a hostile country doesn't discover this thing? You know, so it's really interesting, like looking at all that stuff, especially with everything going on in the world right now and all that. So make sure you head down to the description, follow Anano over on Twitter and make sure you grab a copy of his book, The Man from the Future. All right. But before I let you go, a few things real quick. All right. First off, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Second, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And if you want to help out the podcast, uh, here are two ways that you can help out that are 100% free. One, go leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. Two, share this episode with people on social media, with your friends, with your family members, email it to them. All that stuff really helps get the word out, helps with the algorithms and all that. But some other ways you can help support the podcast. One of them is you can become a paid subscriber over on Substack. The link is down in the description. It's $5 a month or $50 for the year. And you get all of the episodes like this one an entire day early. All right. So some of you are actually listening to this a day early. So if you would like become a paid subscriber over on Substack and yeah, you can also head down to the description and check out the affiliate link down there for better help online therapy. All right. Uh, mental health is a huge, huge, huge part of my life. Um, right now I'm about, if I'm doing the math, right. Eight days away from celebrating 10 years of sobriety. And part of my sobriety is taking care of my, you know, depression, anxiety, and just dealing with everyday stresses of life. And one of the ways I've done that is through BetterHelp Online Therapy. It is a service that I've personally used. So if you're looking for affordable, super convenient therapy, working with a licensed therapist, head down, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy, all right? So another huge thanks to Anano for taking the time to come on the podcast. Make sure you follow him, grab a copy of his book. And yeah, for all of you, I will have another episode for you next week. So until then, have an amazing rest of your day and I'll see you next time.